everyone. How's everyone doing? So welcome to Bureau of the Scientist. Uh, we have a very special evening planned tonight, as you can see. Uh, I think everyone up here has signed disclosure forms because um, this actually is going to be filmed as uh, potentially part of a documentary. So anyone who wants to, to uh, come up here, um, just make sure you sign a disclosure form. Um, okay, so we are very honored um, and humbled to have a really special speaker with us tonight. Um, he's really an exceptional uh, scientist, uh, Dr. Martin Blazer, and he's done really groundbreaking work in understanding how the bacteria that live within our bodies are actually really important for our overall health. Uh, he's a professor at the Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and Henry Rutgers Chair of the Human Microbiome. And it's an understatement to say that his name, uh, Dr. Blazer's name, literally speaks for itself as he set a blazing trail in the advancement of microbiome research. He's been studying the role of bacteria in human disease for over 30 years. And uh, actually his early work established the role of H. pylori uh, in the causation of gastric cancer. But his most pivotal work seeded a paradigm shift from bacteria being uniformly disease-causing organisms to organisms that greatly benefit our species. Uh, Dr. Blazer was the first to demonstrate the protective effects of the bacteria H. pylori in diseases of the esophagus, as well as childhood diarrhea and asthma. Dr. Blazer's more recent research has elucidated how antibiotic use during early childhood poses the greatest risk to long-term health, and he eloquently describes this in his book, Missing Microbes, how the overuse of antibiotics is fueling modern plagues. Dr. Blazer has been widely recognized for his achievements. I will not go through all of his awards, um, but he won the Alexander Fleming Award, a lifetime achievement from the Infectious Diseases Society of America, was elected to the National Academy of Medicine, was a Kenyan lecturer at the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and in 2015, he was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine. His work has been cited over 100,000 times. He's been written about in every magazine possible known. <laughs> New Yorker, Nature, The New York Times, Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal. I could go on, but suffice to say, we're very excited and very lucky to have uh, him here tonight. And thank you all for coming. And please give a warm welcome to Dr. Blazer. Ladies and gentlemen, colleagues, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I, uh, as Jane mentioned, I give scientific talks all the time, but I'm really, in, uh, uh, but I'm really interested in talking to the public. And th this lady here is she's she's filming, so um, because they are making a film about the work we are doing, and uh, 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 my wife and I, uh, you'll hear a little about it, and 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 I'm interested in telling you this story because certainly it's the most important work that I've done in my whole career, but I think it's important for everybody here. So about half or more of what I'm going to tell you is actually really terrible news. It's like, it, it, it's really terrible news. Then, then we'll end up on a higher note, like what, what are we going to do about it? It's it, because, we'll move right to the first slide. Uh, because it's like global warming. So that's why I start with this slide. All of you recognize uh, what's happening to the planet. And 
we could say that global warming is what human activity is doing to our macroecology. And what I'm going to talk about is what human activity is doing to our microecology. And the scale is similar. And it's actually even closer to home. So that's the, that's, that's the big story. And so this is a small group. And uh, what I would say is if anybody has any questions or comments, just interrupt. And periodically, I'll ask you if, if you follow. Okay. So what this slide is about is that there are diseases that are becoming more common, that have been becoming more common over the last 50 years. All, all of you know, for example, that asthma has become more common. But there, there are many other diseases. One of them is juvenile diabetes. That's, that's a problem of children that's doubling every 25 years. Did you work on juvenile diabetes? Yeah, it's a problem of the pancreas. And then I'm particularly interested in the diseases of the esophagus. There's a disease called GERD that was never described before 1930. And now every one of you probably knows somebody who has GERD if you don't have it yourself. So the question is, why are these diseases all going up? If, if 10 diseases are going up more or less in parallel, 10 different causes or one thing fueling everything? So I, I'm going to make the point that our microbiome is changing, and that's, that's what's leading to all these diseases. And I'm going to start by talking about obesity. That's one of those diseases that we all know is getting more common. So this, these, are, these are three maps from the CDC looking at obesity trends in adults in the U.S. And does, does this pointer work? Yeah. So in 1989, there's no state in the United States where more than 14% of adults are obese. And by 2010, there's no state with less than 20%, and the national average is 30%. So what's remarkable is that it's happening everywhere, and the distance between the first map and the last map is only 21 years. Something very powerful is happening. Now, we, ha we know that obesity in adults begins in childhood. So the question is, well, what's happening to kids being overweight in childhood? So here are data from national surveys over about a 35-year period, and you can see the trend line, even in the youngest kids, kids under, under the age of five. And what we know is that kids who are overweight become adults who are overweight and obese. Now, that's, the United, that's kids in the United States. But the question is, what about the rest of the world? So here, it, it, we're looking at a time trend of overweight and obese children globally. Here is a developed countries like the US, and you can see the way the line is going. But even in developing countries of the world, the rates are lower, but you can see they're going up. And if you look at where they are now, it's where we used to be about 30 years ago. So it's consistent with the idea that the same thing is happening there, but it's lagging about 30 years. For example, in China, uh, teenage boys have the, the same kind of rate of overweight that we do. They, they've already reached that level. So these are the rates of overweight. This is, by the way, under five. And now here, is, uh, here are the, the actual numbers of kids. And here it's a little different story because now what you see is that most of the overweight kids under five in the world are living in developing countries because that's where most of the kids are. There are already 50 million kids 
who are overweight under five in developing countries, and you can see where the numbers are going. So this, in fact, isn't, this isn't just an epidemic, it's a pandemic. I, I told you it's bad news. Okay, so the, the point is, how are we gonna understand what's going on? And I'm gonna present three scientific principles that will help you understand this. The first principle is evolution. Anyone here not believe in evolution? That's good. <laughs> I, I, I've come to the right place. So, so this, this slide is, is a phylogeny, it's a family tree. And here we're looking at different, uh, different primates. Uh, and this family tree shows a certain branching pattern. You can, some of them are recognizable. And now this family tree is the family tree of the microbes in the gut of these same kind of species. And if you look at the tree and the branching pattern, you'll see that it's the same. And this high level of congruence uh, is indication that these, these bacteria have been passed down from generation to generation. They've been passed vertically from moms to their, to their babies, generation after generation. It's also consistent with the idea that they're co-evolving because the period of time shown in this graph is, is eight million years of evolution. So our relationship with our microbes has been more or less fixed for at least eight million years. Second concept. This is the idea that the microbes are interacting with the, with the host. And so this is, this is work I did with a mathematician uh, and the idea was, uh, this was our concept of how co-evolved microbes uh, uh, interact with the host. So our idea was that co-evolution selects for microbes that know how to talk to the host. And they receive conversation back. And Denise Kirshner, who I worked on this with, mapped it as a dynamic equilibrium. And she showed it's robust and resilient. And this is basically how we think it's always been. So the, really the question is, what happens to the host when that co-evolved microbe is lost, when it disappears? That's what I'm gonna talk about today. And the third concept is a concept of age window. And that concept says that the microbiome isn't the same at all parts of life. This is work that actually a very talented postdoc in my lab, Nick Bakalich did. He, he studied uh, 42 babies in, in Manhattan uh, and their moms. Uh, uh, here we're, we're looking at the first two years of life. And, and these colors are how these babies' microbiome changes. And the names don't particularly matter, the colors matter. So, so what you see is that early in life, they start out with purple bacteria, and then a light blue and darker blue, uh, et cetera. So the point here is that these patterns are not random. These are 42 babies. They're, they're, they're developing more or less all the same way. When I, when I was in junior high school, uh, when we studied ecology, uh, they talked about a climax forest, how, how the forest evolves in a particular way. And that's what we see. We see a, a succession. That's the way it's always been. And what we know, I won't show you because I have too many slides anyhow, is that it's basically all formed by the age of three. So the first three years of life is the most important period of time. That's when the microbiome is developing, and that is when babies are developing. They're developing their metabolism, their immunity, 
their, their thinking. I, I realize that I actually haven't defined what the microbiome is. The ecosystem within our own bodies. Yeah, it's all the microbes that call us home, that are, that are living in us for days, weeks, months, years, our whole life. That's the microbiome. It's, it's constant, it's dynamic. And, 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 and it forms its characteristics in the first three years of life. Okay? That's, that's important. So I told you that moms have been transferring microbes to their babies for millions of years. How do they do it? Well, it turns out that we humans are mammals, and we begin life in a womb that's pretty much sterile. The first contact of babies to microbes happens when the water breaks. The baby descends through the birth canal and is covered by the mom's microbes. Baby swallows the mom's microbes. The baby has skin-to-skin -skin contact with the mom. Baby's mouth full of microbes inoculates the breast. And now microbes and milk go in, and that forms the new microbiome of the GI tract. Moms are kissing babies and licking babies and pre-masticating food. All, a lot of redundant ways to transfer microbes. That's how humans have always done it. In fact, all animals have done this for millions of years. That's the way it's always been. But now, things are different. Moms live in a world of antiseptics. They live in a world of antibiotics. They have antibacterials in their diet. And babies are different too. Babies may be born by C-section. They may miss that trip through the birth canal. Anybody have any idea what percentage of babies in the U.S. are born by C-section? 20 to 25. 20 to 25. Uh, 32%. One baby in three. And in Manhattan, it's about 50%. And in Ecuador, in Iran, in Turkey, it's all more than 50%. In Shanghai, in Rio de Janeiro, in Rome, it's more than 50%. So C-section has become the new norm. Cross the 50% line. Babies are bathed extensively, washing off all those good microbes. They get formula that only superficially resembles human milk. And of course, babies are getting a lot of medications, especially antibiotics, which I'm going to be talking about. So over these last 20 years, I've been thinking about this idea, which I call the theory of disappearing microbiota. And this theory has just two main ideas. The first is that human ecology is changing, and that's altered how the microbes are transmitted and maintained. And, and that affects the composition of the microbes. And the other is that microbes, both good and bad, are usually acquired early in life. And that's very important because that's the stage of life when development occurs. So that's, that's my big theory. And now, now I'm going to show you evidence about that. But first, I'm going to extend the theory Shown here, the effect of mom's status on the resident microbiota of the next generation. Our idea was that ancient moms had an ancient microbiota, and they would pass that on to their kids. But if they lost microbes and they couldn't get them back, then the next generation would be born at a deficit, and so on and so forth. So this is our idea for what's been happening over the 20th century, that babies are progressively losing diversity. There are two possibilities. One is that each generation just resets, goes back to zero, and then it starts again. And the other is that it's cumulative across generation. We think that's the case. And unfortunately, there's more and more evidence that it is the case. 
Here's this bacteria that Jane mentioned, Helicobacter pylori. This is an organism that used to be the dominant member of the stomach's bacteria, and it's been disappearing. Here's three generations of families in Japan, grandmothers, mothers, children. You see the same kind of step that we've talked about. And lots of other work is showing the same kind of step down. So our microbes are disappearing. So what's causing it? The short answer is that many things are causing it, but I'm just going to talk about one thing, and that is antibiotics. So all of us grew up, unless somebody here is really old, uh, all of us grew up in the antibiotic era. Uh, that's, that's since the 1940s. Antibiotics are one of the pillars of modern life, one of the greatest discoveries of humankind, <laughs> saved innumerable lives, affected every area of medicine. Antibiotics are fabulous. Actually, I'm, I'm a medical doctor. I specialize in infectious diseases. Antibiotics are what I do for a living. So I absolutely believe in antibiotics. However, we are using antibiotics more and more and more. How much more? Recent estimate, 73 billion antibiotic doses used worldwide yearly. That's 10 antibiotic pills for every man, woman, and child on Earth every year, and the numbers are going up. In the United States, the CDC counted in 2011 262 million courses of antibiotics, 842 courses per thousand population, five courses for every six people year after year. Children, by the time they're two, the average child in the U U.S. gets three courses of antibiotics. By the time they're 10, they get 10 courses. You're generally young. You probably don't remember all the times you got antibiotics but you're, you're somewhere around this average. Pregnant women, right before that intergenerational handoff of microbes, about 50% of them getting antibiotics. And then there's antibiotic exposure from use on the farm. We don't even know how much it is. So that's the US. How about developing countries where people are poor? So here's work done in eight populations of poor kids in developing countries, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Brazil, etc. Here's the first two years of life. Here's antibiotic courses per person year. This blue line I drew in, this is the rate of kids in the US. And of these poor kids, six out of the eight places, they're using more antibiotics than in the US, including here in Pakistan and in Bangladesh, where the kids are getting, on average, 10 courses of antibiotics in the first year of life. You, you might say, how is that possible? turns out that these kids have parents who really are concerned about their health. And the child has a fever, they go to the local pharmacy who's happy to sell them an antibiotic. Or sometimes the child has a headache, they take an antibiotic for that. Because everybody knows that antibiotics are miraculous. So the use in developing countries is even more than in, develop, in many developed countries. Now, one of the things I'm very interested in is how variable antibiotic uses. Some doctors prescribe antibiotics for everyone, and some give them sparingly. The CDC looked at regional differences. So the national average in 2010 was 833 per thousand. Northeast, 830. Here's New York. Midwest, 868. West, 638. South, 936. 50% difference between the South and the West. This is across tens of millions of people year after year there is no 50% difference in the rate of serious infections. This reflects differences in the practice of medicine, in the culture of medicine. 
Studies looking at doctors in New York and Pennsylvania show enormous variation in how they prescribe antibiotics. Now here are two maps from the CDC, both from 2010. Geography of obesity and geography of antibiotic use. And if you look at these maps, you see that there's a lot of similarity. So these are observational data. They don't tell us what causes what. But there certainly is a strong resemblance, and it's consistent with the idea that antibiotics have something to do with obesity. I'm going to tell you more about it. But first, I want to frame the question. So everybody talks about icebergs and the tip of the iceberg. So there's a lot of interest in, in using too many antibiotics. What do you think the big interest is? And, and superbugs, antibiotic resistance. So to me, that's the tip of the iceberg. The rest of the iceberg is disruption of the microbiome and the consequences from that. So what kind of consequences? Well, there can be short-term consequences or long-term consequences. They could be different, de developmental, situational, senescent, generational. I'm going to tell you about all of them. Now I'm going to explain what that means. So first I'm going to talk about development, metabolic. So it turns out that 70 years ago, farmers found out that if they fed antibiotics to farm animals, they would grow fatter earlier. That's why farmers use so many antibiotics. It's called growth promotion. And the reason that they do it is because it works. They can make fa faster, fatter chickens, cows, pigs, big swath of vertebrate evolution. It works with just about any antibacterial anybody has ever tried. Bees. Yeah, bees too. Insects also. Yeah, so it's, it's actually very, it's very broad in evolution. So just about any antibacterial, antifungals don't work, antivirals don't work. So farmers figured out that the earlier in life they started the antibiotics, the faster the animals would grow and the, the, the more efficiently they'd use their feed. That's the conversion of food food calories into body mass. That's what farmers are trying to do. They're trying to fatten up their animals. So we began doing studies in mice where we would give antibiotics to mice or not. We'd examine their properties, look at the microbiome, talk, find relationships. I'm going to show you a few of our many experiments in mice. So first experiment is, was done by Il-Sung Cho when he was working, he was a postdoctoral fellow in my lab. Il-Sung gave four different courses of antibiotics to mice at the midpoint of the level that is allowed on the farm, or no antibiotics. And here we're looking at percent body fat. And what Il-Sung found is that the mice on antibiotics became fatter. You can kind of see it in this kind of diagram. So this was our first evidence that antibiotics were changing metabolism. They were changing how mice were growing. We, we had lots of other evidence, but I'm going to move you to the next experiment that Lori Cox did when she was a graduate student in the lab. Lori asked the question, what happens if you combine a diet that's rich in calories, full of fat, and antibiotics? So she did an experiment which we called FAT-STAT, high-fat-STAT subtherapeutic antibiotics. So she gave mice penicillin in their drinking water or not. She put all the mice on normal food and then at week 17 of life put half the mice on a high-fat diet. Here are the results on body mass, male mice, female mice, 
total mass, fat mass, lean mass. So if we look at the male mice, normal chow, no antibiotics, this line is their weight. Normal chow with antibiotics, they're bigger, just like on the farm. High fat diet, bigger still. High fat plus antibiotics, big est. Lean mass, increased just like on, the, on antibiotics, just like on the farm. Fat mass, incre big increase on the high fat diet, even more high fat plus antibiotics. Female mice, many of the same trends, but the average female mouse on the high fat diet gains five grams of body fat. High fat diet plus antibiotics, 10 grams. They double the amount of fat. The antibiotic has potentiated the effect of the high calorie, high fat diet. Life is unfair, bigger effect in females than males, but it's happening to both. So Lori did many other experiments, and I'm just gonna show you one other in this series. She did, she did what's called a, a fecal transplant. She transplanted intestinal contents from one mouse to the other. So she took the contents from a mouse that received antibiotics or not, she harvested the microbes and she gave them to germ-free mice. These are mice that have been living all their life in a bubble. They've never seen, an, uh, uh, they've never seen a, um, uh, a, a microbe until they, we gave them the microbes. And now we're going to follow them for five weeks. They never get any antibiotics. And now we're looking at total lean and fat mass. Black line is the control group. We find that the antibiotic perturbed microbiota makes them bigger. No effect on lean, makes them fatter. So the signal is in the altered microbes. They're carrying the metabolic signal. For this experiment, we chose penicillin because that's like the most commonly used antibiotic. It's also the class of organisms that penicillin is in is the most widely used antibiotic in children around the world. That's why we picked penicillin. Then we picked another antibiotic called tylosin, which is in a class called macrolides. That's the second, that's like erythromycin or the Z-Pak. Some of you have probably taken a Z-Pak. That's the, that's the most widely prescribed antibiotic in the United States. So we wanted to use antibiotics that were common. And we see this across many antibiotics. It's just, there's so many different variables, we're trying to slow it down. So I'm, I've shown you some evidence about how antibiotics are changing metabolic development how about immunological development? So, so we're interested in this type 1 diabetes because I told you it's, it's doubling every 25 years and that's an autoimmune disease. So there's a certain kind of mouse called the NOD mouse that spontaneously gets type 1 diabetes. So we wanted to see, could we push that diabetes by giving them antibiotics? Either three courses of antibiotics or Xu Song Zhang, uh, one of my colleagues in the lab, just asked, what happens if she, he just gives a single course of antibiotics early in life? What's going to happen to their development of diabetes? And here's the answer. Here, the control mice, no antibiotics are shown in blue. The mice that got antibiotics are shown in red, whether they received one course or three courses. This is the probability that they'll be free of diabetes, and you can see it's very low. So even a single course of antibiotics early in life is pushing this disease. So that's one of our ideas for why type 1 diabetes is going up so fast, is antibiotic use. Now, Xu Song did a lot of work on this, and I'm just going to show you one part of it. He, he asked the question, when, when, when a mouse is young, like a baby, 
do, do all their genes express at the same time? Or are they expressing at different times? Is there a maturation of how their genes turn on? So he looked at genes in the intestine, in the ileum, and this just shows that as mice get older, their genes mature in a kind of directional path. So then he asked, what about the mice that get the antibiotics? How are their mice genes maturing? And so he finds the control mice, be in this period of early life in the mouse, they have all these genes maturing. But the mice that get antibiotics, they have all these genes. Some of them overlap, so some of them aren't affected by the antibiotics. But some of the ones that should mature are, normally are not, and then other ones that shouldn't mature are. So we know what all, so we have like five different classes of genes. We know what all of them are, and then we can organize them into pathways. And we can see which paths, how's the microbiome signaling the host? And this is a very important pathway in what's called innate immunity, toll-like receptor signaling. And we can see all the genes in color are affected by antibiotic, either up or down. And you can see there's a lot. Okay. Competition. So what does that mean? So we take antibiotics to uh, treat infections so that infections will get cured. And actually, antibiotics work. That's why we taste them. Well, the question is, we know that the microbiome is part of our defenses against invading organisms. What happens if you take an antibiotics? Does that affect your susceptibility to a later infection? So Claire Roubault, who's from France, when she was working in the lab, asked if she perturbs the microbiota with antibiotics, will that protect against an invasion? So the experiment that she did is that she gave mice either water or this macrolide antibiotic, and then she gave them the challenge with, with, with a, a mouse pathogen. It's kind of like a, a pathogenic E. coli for mice called C. rodentium. She gave the pathogen one day after stopping the antibiotic, or 23 days after stopping the antibiotic, or 80 days after stopping the antibiotic, and she measured a lot of things. And I'm not going to show you the one day or the 23 days because the antibiotic had a big effect. I'm going to go immediately to 80 days and show you that if you look at what's the level of the bacteria in the, in the intestinal tract of the mice, the mice that got antibiotics 80 days earlier, they're carrying about one log more bacteria, about 10 times more bacteria. And if you ask what happens to their weight when they get infected, here the black line are mice that don't have the infection. The blue line are mice that just got water 80 days ago. And here are mice that got amoxicillin, and here are mice that got tylosin. Th these mice are cut off because actually they had all died. So it's a paradox. We take the antibiotic to treat the infection, but we become more susceptible to other infections. This is a model system. Okay, it gets worse. <laughs> Cancer. So, um, so there's some genes that are related to cancer called the BRCA1 and BRCA2. And, and women who have these genes, uh, which are moderately common, are at high risk for getting breast, can breast and ovarian cancer. This is well known. And actually, the person who uh, discovered BRCA1, Mary Claire King, made this graph. So if a woman or her relative has this, she's got a high risk of getting one of these cancers. But then she made a second graph. She asked, what year was the woman born in? 
And what she found is that in women who were born before 1940, they were on this curve. And women born after 1940, they're, born, they're on this curve. So something changed. Colon cancer. This is work from the National Cancer Institute. So colon cancer in old people is getting less common. This is good news. This is finally some good news. But in young people, it's becoming more common. Now these rates are, mu these rates are much lower than in old people, but there's been, a, there's been a reversal. And these investigators from the National Cancer Institute did some statistical analysis. They asked at what age, in what year was somebody born when the rate changed from cancer rate going down to cancer rate going up? And they calculated about 1950. And actually, there are very similar data for stomach cancer. Stomach cancer, old cancer going down, young cancer going up. Now, could that be related to antibiotics? Well, there's a, there's a wonderful study called the Nurses Study, where they've been following about 100,000 nurses for the last 50 years, some of them less than that. And they have all this information about what the nurses have been exposed to and what diseases they get. So this group of investigators at Harvard did a study of 16,000 nurses or ex-nurses who were all over the age of 60 who had colonoscopy. And of those 16,000, about 1,700 had polyps. And polyps are recognized as a pre-malignant lesion. If you, if you leave the polyp go, uh, a big percentage of them will ultimately get colon cancer. So they wanted to know, did exposure to antibiotics affect the risk of getting these polyps? And so they had 16,000 nurses over 60, 1,700 developed polyps. And here they're asking, did these nurses use any antibiotics between the age of 20 and 39? And the answer was that if they used antibiotics, their risk of having one of these polyps went up. The more antibiotics they used, the higher the risk. This is like at least 20 years before the polyp. Then they looked at antibiotic use between 40 and 59. And it's also going up even higher. So this is evidence suggesting something that a doctor never told you, that if you take an antibiotic, it might increase your risk for some of these chronic diseases happening years or decades later. And there's more and more evidence that this is, in fact, correct. So I mentioned the diseases that people get when they're getting older, uh, um, uh, cancer, but they're also metabolic like diabetes. So this slide, and I'm not going to show you the whole study, this slide is from a study of more than a million people in Denmark, where the investigators asked, they have very good records of all drug use in Scandinavia, and uh, certainly antibiotics. Uh, so they asked, they, they matched people who had type 2, adult onset diabetes, with people who didn't have adult onset diabetes. And then they went back to their records and they asked, who took antibiotics? And the answer was that the people who took antibiotics had a much higher rate of having type 2 diabetes. If they had multiple courses, they, their rate was 1.5, 50% increase. And, and they showed that the risk went back about 15 years. 
And that was a study in, in Denmark. There's also a study of more than a million people in England showing the same thing. So that's diabetes. Also, kidney stones, a disease that's increasing associated with, with, uh, with antibiotic use. Big study in England, 290,000 people. One more piece of bad news. <laughs> this, is actually the this, this is actually the worst one. <laughs> I, I hate to even smile. But the point is, we, we, have, to, we, have, to, we have to recognize the problem, be, and then we can solve it. Okay? So, so the, here the question is, if a mother takes an antibiotic, what's, how's that going to affect her child? So, so we, we were interested in inflammatory bowel disease. That's, that's one of those diseases that's increasing, uh, one of the modern diseases. And here we go back to Denmark. They did an epidemiologic study showing that more courses of antibiotics that kids took early in life, the bigger their risk of developing childhood IBD. And there are other studies like that. So we went back to the mouse, and we wanted to know, could antibiotics push the risk of IBD? And we did this in a special kind of mouse, the, a mouse called the IL-10 deficient mouse. This is a mouse that spontaneously develops IBD. It's similar to the studies we did with diabetes, similar to the studies we did with obesity. And we also compared them with wild-type mice, normal mice. We wanted to see if they would develop colitis. So, this work was done by Angel Schulfer, a very talented uh, graduate student in the lab. Angel took poop from, uh, from, a, from, a, from mice that received antibiotics, or not, normal poop, and she gave them to IL-10 deficient mice or, or normal mice, but these mice happened to be germ-free and they happened to be pregnant. That's how we did the experiment. So we. So these mice have never seen any bacteria. We give them either the antibiotic perturbed microbiota or the normal microbiota. The pregnant mice are now conventionalized with their, they now have their microbes. They now give birth and now we follow their pups till their pups are about middle age. And we ask two questions. What's the effect of the microbiota, of the antibiotic on the microbes being transferred to the next generation? And what's the effect on the disease in this mouse model? So first, the effect on the ecology of the transfer. This is a very busy slide, and you just have to kind of look at the color density. Whether we did it in the wild-type mice or the IL-10 deficient mice, the control, the normal microbiota transferred very nicely to the mom and to the next generation. But the antibiotic perturbed microbiota didn't transfer nearly as well. Can you all see that? And you see it in the wild type and you can see it in the IL-10 deficient also. So we saw lots of problems. The antibiotic impaired the ability of the microbiota to engraft in the next generation. But the big question was, what's the effect on disease? So now we're looking at close-up of the colon of mice that were IL-10 deficient, these are the mice that spontaneously develop colitis, when they're 21 weeks old, middle-aged, according to the, the microbes that their moms were exposed. So here's a mouse who was, who's, whose mom was exposed to normal microbes. They have colitis, this is abnormal. 
but the mouse whose mom got the perturbed microbiota, they have a lot of colitis. It isn't even close. In fact, th this is a striking finding. However, when we measure it, depending on the different index, it's 30 to 50 times greater. It's huge. What's important about this experiment is that these pups never saw an antibiotic. Their mothers never saw an antibiotic. All the signal, the enhanced disease signal, is transferred with the microbes. So that means that antibiotic effects cross generations. And it also means that inheritance, when we think about human inheritance, it's not just human genes, it's mi microbes and their genes too. Okay, we're, gonna, we're almost ready for the good news. So here, here's the summary, here's the summary. Antibiotics have long-term effects on metabolism and immunity. I showed you some of that and probably cognition. The effects are due to perturbing the microbiome. Other factors of modern life also contribute. I haven't shown you that, but there's evidence for that. Effects may be transmitted to the next generation. And we need to find and implement solutions, desperately. This, this is about your kids and your grandkids. Solutions. So here's this idea about how we're losing diversity. I'm showing three different kinds of countries. Blue might be a country like the US, where we have been modernizing for the last seven generations, maybe beginning with chlorinating water and with a cumulative loss of diversity. Red might be India or China. They started to modernize much later, but they're ca catching up in a, big, in a hurry. Yellow might be a country in Latin America or Africa just getting started. So this is where I thought we were in 2016. It's a schematic. And the, the big question is, what's the future going to bring? Is the microbiome going to decline further? Are we going to take steps to arrest the decline? Or are we going to reverse this, which we believe will require restoration, that we're going to have to restore the disappearing microbes? How are we going to do this? I think that the medicine of the future, uh, when a pediatrician examines a baby, they're going to examine that baby and the baby's diaper. And they're going to ask, does that baby have the global microbes that every baby should have? Do they have the personal microbes that a baby of this genotype should have? And if they don't, they're going to give microbes that we and other maybe scientists in this audience will discover in the lab uh, to try to put them on a normal trajectory, to restore th their microbiota at the right time. And if they get it wrong the first time, they're going to do it again and try to reshape the microbiota to optimize health. Now, one of the questions is, where are these microbes going to come from? And to that end, uh, a group of scientists, uh, including uh, myself and especially my wife, Maria Gloria Dominguez, uh, have started something called the Microbiota Vault. In fact, this was, this was Gloria's idea, and we're trying to carry it out. It's very similar to the seed vault. So the seed vault is, is to preserve the seeds of humankind for posterity, for 100 years from now, for 500 years from now, so because with monoculture, we're losing, we're losing seeds and we're losing microbes as well. So we, we want to preserve the microbiota. And this is active. You can look at our website. Uh, and 
We need all the help we can get. This is, this is a long-term progress. It took the seed vault 30 years to, to, to actually have a seed vault, and, uh, and we're one year into it now with the microbiota vault. So lots of people have uh, done the work uh, that I've told you about. I've mentioned some of them. Lots of different funding. And I think I'm going to stop here and see if anybody has any questions. Thank you. Questions? I'm just curious. Um, there's been a lot of work uh, doing fecal transplant um, therapy to try to restore some microbiome mishaps, I suppose, uh -huh. especially for obesity and also for some colon. Uh -huh issues. I'm wondering if that has is is under investigation yeah. or if you guys are looking at that yeah. as a possible therapy to right. replace um, right. some of these disappearing microbes. Yeah, this is good. You can tell your friends you went to a bar and you were talking about fecal transplants. <laughs> it's a great it's a great conjunction. Uh, but um, so so there's a very severe infection uh, that's caused by antibiotics called C. diff infection. Probably many of you have heard of it. And it's now clear that fecal transplant, that is taking intestinal materials from a healthy person, can, can cure these people with C. diff. Yeah, right, right. Completely, and, and it works. It's, it's become the standard of care. And so people say, okay, can we extend that? Can we treat other conditions with fecal transplant? And up to this point, there have been no resounding successes. People are working on it. I, I think that we have a ways to go. And maybe we don't need to do a fecal transplant. Maybe we can figure out what are the five or 10 important bugs and just give those. Maybe we need the whole thing. We, we don't know that yet, it's, it's young. But I'll, I'll make the analogy. Let's say, let's say somebody was, was bleeding out right now. And we said, I said, oh, that's fine. We'll just give them a blood transfusion. We'll take the blood transfusion from anyone. Maybe that wouldn't work. So that's what we're doing with fecal transplant. I, I think we could, we, probably there will be ways to make it more specific. And then it's worth trying again. I already had the mic. There um, we go. So I was wondering, to come back to possible points of intervention, I guess, in there is a certain standardized protocol for routine use of antibiotics in labor and delivery. So most pregnant women at 36 weeks get tested for a bacteria called group B strep. Um, this doesn't cause disease in mothers, but it, it used to be a leading cause of death in newborn infants or meningitis newborn infants. So we routinely treat for that in labor and delivery regardless um, with a penicillin-related antibiotic. And then if they develop an infection during labor, they get more antibiotics on top of that. So they get, you know, gentamicin, another macrolide. And then if they end up having a C-section, they get another antibiotic on top of that. If they were already in labor, maybe they'll get more antibiotics for 24 hours after the C-section. And then we try to do skin to skin, they're breastfeeding. But it sounds like you're implying that the, you know, this, this might actually be something that even though it's reduced maternal morbidity and mortality and neonatal morbidity might be contributing to longer term issues in the microbiome right. for generations. Yeah, yeah. So to make, a, to make a long story short, and I won't repeat your question because it's <laughs> too long, but, but I think you're right. And see, the idea is we, we have all these epidemics. 
why are people becoming obese all over the world? Why is there asthma? Why, why are all these things going up? There, there, there has to be a reason. You know, you could say obesity is because we're eating too much, but that won't explain asthma, or it won't explain inflammatory bowel disease. So something has changed, and it's clear, it's now, when we first talked about it, it wasn't so clear, at least to others, but uh, it's now clear that we, we've lost a lot of diversity, and we're losing it at a critical time of early life. That, that's, that's the critical window. So there are many things you said, and I, I actually agree with everything you said, but I want to point out for everybody else that um, for group E strep, which is an important problem for kids, um, the policy in the United States is to give antibiotics to every woman who has group E strep. In Sweden, the policy is to give it for specific indication, not just because you're positive. If a woman has a urinary tract infection due to group E strep, then she's going to get it. If she has prolonged rupture of her membranes, other indications. In total, in Sweden, they're using that antibiotic prophylaxis less than half that we're using. And there is no epidemic of group E strep in the United States. So our policies have to change. Pro we, for every case of group E strep sepsis that we are preventing, we're treating 200 moms and babies. So there's a, we, there's a lot of room for improvement. And, okay, so and, and but th this, whole, this whole idea, that this issue about antibiotics in pregnancy and during labor, et cetera, this wasn't on the radar screen. Just everybody knew that antibiotics were miraculous and you had to give them because they had great effect. They have reduced maternal mortality. But we, we have to use them much smarter, much smarter. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, you're next. I have okay. a quick question, I'm sorry, I'm being selfish. Uh, but, so you talked a lot about um, in early life and there seems to be very long-term effects of antibiotic use. What about when you're an adult and you get several cycles of antibiotics. Are these changes stable, like, or can we reverse it? Mm -hmm. um, and what do you think about probiotics? Like, I know... I was looking for that slide. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I know a lot of probiotics won't necessarily restore the, the, um, the diversity of the microbiome, but like, are there... What's your perspective on like, what are the best solutions in terms of restoring the, the microbiome health? And, and address yeah. The, uh, yeah. the adult. So, so I'll try to answer your five questions. Sorry. I was supposed <laughs> to be quick. You can answer just one. Okay, no, no they're, they're all really very germane. So, um, so the first thing is, let's say you're an adult and you take antibiotics. That's why I showed you the slide about the diabetes, uh, because there's more and more evidence that there is a cost to taking that antibiotic. Also, the susceptibility to later infections. There, there's a cost. Uh, second, we're, I'm now involved in a study uh, in partnership with the National Institute of Health where we are asking the question, what happens when a healthy young adult takes a week of antibiotics? It's a study, it's a clinical trial. We, we're planning to enroll 80 people. We've already enrolled 25. They will either get amoxicillin azithromycin or no antibiotic. We will study them twice before the antibiotics, three times during the antibiotics, and five times after, out to a year. We're gonna ask, what's the effect of the antibiotic on their microbiome? What's their effect on metabolism? What's their effect on uh, uh, immunity? 
we're going to actually do thousands of tests on each person. Actually, thousands of tests at each time. No, no, nobody has done a, a study. Nobody has done a study to this scale before. But we think it's an important question because this is happening millions of times a week that people are taking a, a week of antibiotics. And I think we, we already know, of course, that it, it will affect the microbiome for a while. And we're going to find out exactly how long and whether it differs between the antibiotics. We already know that some of the metabolic markers are different. Like, so once they're off, like, sample again after months later? Yeah, five samples after they're off out to a year. It's a gigantic study. So you also asked about probiotics. So the thing about probiotics is that there are, there are hundreds of products. You, I, I have this great slide showing like walking into CVS and seeing like hundreds of probiotic products. And um, it, it's like, I don't know, it's like saying, uh, uh, is, is this car good? Is this cereal good? There are lots of different kinds of cars. There are lots of different kinds of cereals. There are lots of kinds of probiotics. What I can say is that most of them are untested. And in some of them, the probiotics aren't even alive. Yeah, yeah, I, right. So, marketing. Yeah, probiotics, 99% marketing. There, there are some, there are some reputable companies that are actually doing clinical trials, and I think that probiotics are going to be really important, but not the probiotics of today. I think this is uh, actually. I think that was. We're, we're going to wrap up and. Uh, Thank you very much, Marty, for the very enlightening talk. And um, so we're gonna have uh, we're gonna Just have for your next one. Let yeah. me just say, yeah. uh, you guys are a terrific audience. Very, uh, uh, thank very you. Uh, engaged. Good. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting, important topic, and uh, we're gonna have a, a podcast of Marty's talk available on our. On our website, bureauofthescientist.com. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, everywhere you get podcasts. And uh, we're going to have links to uh, Marty's book. And we'll, we'll get you to send us some articles where uh, people can further educate themselves or maybe some uh, family members or friends, parents that you uh, in your life that you can also um, uh, reach with this important message that we've learned about today. And so, uh, yeah, so let's thank Marty again, and uh, thank you guys. Just, just so I can have the last word, uh, I forgot to plug my book, Missing, Missing Microbes. It's, it's, in, it's in 20 languages, and, and, and Father's Day is right around the corner. Get it at your favorite bookstore.